Greetings and salutations, movie fans. Coming to you live from Denton, Texas, it's the Daniel Barrios Podcast. What is up, friends? Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Daniel Barrios Podcast. This is a show about the movies as told by yours truly, Daniel Berrios. I am so excited to be starting this. I've been loving movies since I was a baby. I've been writing about movies since I was a late teen. I've written blogs. I've been on YouTube. I write currently for ShuffleOnline.net. If you have any time, go to ShuffleOnline.net and check out the wonderful work they're doing there. Uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. We're going to talk about the very first thing here. Uh, Spike Lee, his next movie is about Viagra about uh, <laughs> the title is going to be Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. <laughs> uh, yeah, apparently Spike Lee's next film is going to be based on an Esquire article about the creation of the drug Viagra that uh, apparently was started by the guys that are working in uh, the COVID vaccine now, Pfizer. And uh, it looks like researchers were trying to figure out something to do with chest pain and kind of like the greatest inventions of the world discovered by accident that you know you take this stuff it can not necessarily get rid of your chest pain but get make you forget you had any because all the blood is going to be from your brain to your wiener and that's what viagra is apparently and it was started by these two guys uh, ronnie nelson and dr sal giorgiani i'm so sorry if i messed up that name but apparently these guys had a big struggle trying to get viagra to the market you had to deal with the catholic church and you had to deal with people that thinks oh if you start selling a dick hardening pill you're gonna ruin this company and blah 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 and the more I hear about this article and the snippets that I've read from it, the more I'm getting of like an Adam McKay, big short type of vibe. But if you infuse it with Spike Lee's just vision, and it's one of those guys that just, you know, he's got a point of view. And no matter what he's going to do, I don't know if it's going to be a critique of, you know, masculinity is it gonna be one of those things where like you know these guys who have ed have been struggling for so long they don't feel like men or is it gonna be more of like a biopic story about these two guys one uh one of them being a black man who helped you know market viagra i mean you go on his twitter page the guy's basically uh written the greatest marketer that you've never heard of which was true i had to look all this up to figure out who this guy is so Seeing that uh, movie pop up through Spike Lee's vision might be great. But I want to read y'all here, because this was broken by Deadline, as most things are. Spike Lee, breaking the news to Deadline, decided to give them something, you know, a reasoning or how excited he is for the movie. I'm going to read this. So, first and foremost, I thank Miss Jacqueline Shelton Lee. I thank my late mother for, as she would say, taking, quote, my narrow, rusty behind, dragging, kicking and screaming to the movies when I was a nappy-headed kid growing up in the streets of the People's Republic of Brooklyn. By the way, if you read this online, every single word is capitalized. I did not want to see corny people singing and dancing. I instead wanted to play with my friends on the block. 
Stoop ball, stick ball, punch ball, softball, basketball, two-hand touch, tackle football, Coco Livio, Johnny on the Pony, hot peas and butter, crack top, down the sewer, and of course, booties up. All the great New York City street games that might be sadly lost forever. If you have any idea what any of those games are, leave them in the comments or hit me up on Twitter. It's at Berrios Podcast, B-E-R-R-I-O-S. We're going to continue. My father, Bill Lee, jazz folk bassist, composer, hated Hollyweird movies. Henceforth and whatnot, me being the eldest of five children, I became mommy's movie date. She was a cinephile. Thank you, Lottie. She didn't listen to my ongoing complaints about musicals. So finally going into my fourth decade as a filmmaker, I will be directing a dancing, all-singing musical Spike Lee joint. And I can't wait. My mom's has been waiting too. And that's the Rodgers and Hammerstein truth, Ruth. Is there any guy like Spike Lee? Is there really any guy like Spike Lee on the planet? Really, just... The man is how old and he approaches film with the exuberance of some, like, kid fresh out of school. He's a guy that is so exciting to watch. And it's really a shame. I haven't been into his filmography more. But the movies that I've seen, again, it's probably the common for most people would be Do the Right Thing and Black Klansman. Those are the two of his I've seen. But I've loved them both. And, you know, if you have any Spike Lee movies, any recommendations, anywhere to start, preferably streaming services because I'm broke, go ahead and hit me up, again, at Barrios Podcast. Just leave those recommendations over there. Uh, Speaking of which, before I forget, a belated birthday, speaking of Spike Lee and great New York filmmakers, uh, a belated happy birthday to my favorite director of all time, Martin Scorsese. He turned 78 years old, I believe on Wednesday when you hear him talk about movies, it immediately it immediately makes me want to go and make one or makes me want to go watch one or sit in a theater for 45 hours and just ingest through my face all the beauty that cinema and art has to offer. So thank you for everything you've done, sir, especially for silence. I needed that in my life. Uh, happy birthday, Marty. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is apparently starting his inching towards being a novelist i know we've heard that before that the man's gonna make 10 movies and that's it finito he's just gonna move on to something else and it looks like we're starting to see the first rumblings of that kind of lifestyle in 2021 apparently he's gonna drop the novelization of once upon a time in hollywood with as many viewings as i've had of it is quickly quickly becoming one of my favorite tarantino movies just one of those films i can turn on let my brain sit and relax and kind of just enjoy this magical world that tarantino tossed me in to experience that in a book form to have more info to have more insight into the characters the inner monologues so to speak i'd love to read that i mean we all know how good tarantino is with dialogue so to have an entire you know I don't know how long it would take to read this book experience with that would be pretty freaking great. It's not just Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that we're getting. We are also getting another book. It's a nonfiction book apparently called Cinema Speculation. It's going to be a kind of historical book. It's going to be about the films of the 1970s. It's going to be full of essays and reviews and just random writings from Tarantino. And then some of the things that I think are fun and I think you know, is as Tarantino as possible, the quote, what ifs, this is a quote from the publisher, this idea of like, what if this happened instead of this? What if uh, Burt Reynolds didn't make deliverance? What would happen if, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese made the Godfather? Like, 
weird scenarios like this based in history. You know, we get experience to Tarantino's knowledge through his movies, but to see it from, you know, straight, unfiltered from his brain and just spewing out on the page, I think it's going to be fun. And honestly, I can't wait to read those. Arguably the biggest thing that happened this week was Wonder Woman 1984 is finally, after months of speculation, after people arguing about, look, this is the type of movie that revives the theaters, that people will go out to see, no matter if the world is crumbling into disease nothingness, and there are some people that are like, no, we need to drop this on PVOD immediately. It looks like Warner Brothers finally decided to appease both parties, and they are putting Wonder Woman out on Christmas in theaters and on HBO Max. And honestly, this seemed kind of inevitable for me. This is one of those movies that has been pushed back, and the trailers and the marketing has been kind of minimal on it. And respectfully so. I mean, if you don't know when you're going to drop this in a theater, are you really about to push, you know, $150 million, $200 million into a big marketing campaign? Or are you just going to stay low and see what happens with the world? And by the world, unfortunately, I mean the U.S. Because we are just dissolving into like a day of the dead type madness and i am terrified if you're not terrified then we need to have a talk fam thinking about wonder woman going to hbo max the one good thing i've noticed it looks like hbo and warner brothers have learned the lesson that disney took a while to learn which was that you can't bring people onto your service and promise them all this exclusive content and then on top of that charge them in their minds, Disney Plus is free. Even though they're paying for it a month, anything that's on Disney Plus, oh, it's free. So wait, I have to pay on top of that? Like, what's the point? It's truly, what's the point? So I think what HBO is doing is good. And I've heard that Disney is doing the same thing with Soul. There is also dropping Christmas Day that they are not you know, charging people the $30 premium VOD to make it work. Instead, they're doing just a regular release for everybody, which I think... If you're going to drop this stuff on Disney+, Plus, if you're going to drop this stuff on a service that people are paying for, I think it should be free. Otherwise, you know, do what ended up happening to Mulan. You know, just drop it for 20 bucks on every other VOD service and just treat it like a regular release. I feel like trying to muddy the waters is kind of just a bad idea. And thankfully, it looks like these companies are slowly moving away from that. And frankly, it'll make a hell of a lot of money on Christmas Day. I really think people are going to be really excited to go check these kind of movies out in the comfort of their own home. I mean, it's that feeling of you go to Christmas with the family and you have everybody together and you're bored of playing with your presents already. The excitement is worn down. So let's go catch a movie. Let's catch the newest thing that's out. So people can embrace that feeling from home and still have the, I guess, the quality or the prestige of that big blockbuster release but regardless of the quality of something, it's the event. And I feel like when you work your way around to like, oh, this movie that normally you would pay like 25 bucks and sit in a theater for, what's the best way that we can give you that experience at home? Honestly, you take away the cost. And frankly, that's how people get excited. That's how people regard it as an event. That's something that should be big luxury now suddenly becomes more available. Look, COVID is one of those things that unfortunately, you know, screws everybody. So the best way to approach something, if you're a 
potentially billion dollar company is frankly you gotta keep people on your side you gotta start making your bones with people not with profits because once you know the people are gone so are the profits so honestly if you're gonna drop something like this just make it accessible for everybody and they're more likely to stick with you and stick with your stuff i don't know I think that's the way we should be treating things, although I'm also the person that thinks we should go back into mandatory lockdown until this shit is all over. But yeah, Wonder Woman coming to HBO Max. Will this, a question, will this stuff, if you haven't gotten HBO Max like me, is that going to make you get HBO Max? That Wonder Woman is there for free or would you rather just go on, um, would you rather just go to the theater and check it out? I'm, I don't think it would make me get it. But I have noticed that there is a decent amount of stuff on HBO Max now with like the DC Universe stuff, which I'm actually excited to catch. I haven't caught Harley Quinn yet, but Harley Quinn sounds great. And the HBO shows, which I never had. I'm debating it. You know, let me know. If y'all have HBO Max, let me know how the experience is. Uh, just hit me up on Twitter. I'm going to move on to uh, smaller news. We are getting another Transformers movie. And I don't think that was a mystery after Bumblebee did so well. And Bumblebee was a really good movie. But I don't understand what Paramount is doing. I think they're trying the Sony approach and literally throwing everything in the wall to see what sticks. From what I've heard, they have two different scripts for a live-action Transformers. And then apparently the guy that directed Toy Story 4, Josh Cooley, he's directing an animated version of a Transformers film. Is Transformers going to be the new Spider-Man cinematic universe where we're just going to literally throw everything and see what happens? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not entirely sure. When it comes to the live action thing, they have found their director in Stephen Cable Jr., the guy who directed Creed 2. Uh, Creed 2 was pretty good. To be honest, I don't remember much of it. It's one of those films that I, I think it was just a hard act to follow. Creed was such a juggernaut and continues to be one of the best movies in the Rocky franchise, arguably better than the first Rocky. But then following that up, following Creed up with Creed 2, it's a good movie. I think it's kind of plagued a little bit in the script. But I did like a lot of what Stephen Cable Jr. did by changing a little bit of the tone and he got a little bit darker and he got... In the more introspective scenes, I thought that was pretty good. So him doing Transformers, I don't know what that's going to look like. Is that going to be, you know, Capel showing off his more zany uh, sci-fi approach? Or is that him maybe bringing Transformers down a notch? Maybe it's a little bit more down to earth in a weird sense. I don't know what he would do with a project like this, but I'm a little bit interested as long as it's not Michael Bay and his weird Mark Wahlberg holding a sword and having the power to withstand a Transformer smashing a sword into his arm, even though he's the size of like six feet and the Transformers are like 600 feet or whatever, it, it's just ridiculous. I, I like a change of pace. So Thanksgiving is next week. And I want to ask y'all something because I don't really know how I feel about this. How do y'all feel about Black Friday? And this is for my physical media collectors out there. These are the folks that go out, they grab the Walmart bins and the DVDs and the Blu-rays and all that. How are y'all feeling about this year with COVID? Is this something that y'all would want to do like still? Are y'all planning to go out there, wear masks and rage the crowds? 
do y'all even think there are going to be crowds, to be honest? I have no idea. What's interesting, though, I went to Walmart the other day, and I found that the Black Friday bins are already out there. Like, they already have some of this stuff stocked. I managed to get Birds of Prey and Invisible Man for 16 bucks. So maybe that's the answer that the specials are just going to start earlier to maybe you know spread out that initial surge in the night i mean has black friday in person been as popular as been as it's been in a couple of years my friends with the ps5 is that going to be even worth it is sony even going to ship that stuff out by the time of Black Friday. I mean, I bet you're going to get a little bit, but I don't know if it's going to be enough to quantify or qualify you going out there to risk your life for this shit. I mean, I hear Miles Morales is a fantastic game, and as proud as I am being a Puerto Rican to have my Puerto Rican Spider-Man being like connected to one of the best video games in the past decade, you know, I don't know if I'm planning to go out there and risk my life for that yet. So I guess has the magic of Black Friday been a little lost this year? Are you all still planning to go out there and collect your movies and your deals and your specials? Or is everything online now? And when you do things online, does it still maintain that same thrill? Does it still maintain that excitement? Or am I thinking way too deep into this and y'all are just like, look, man, I just like the movies. I just want the movies at a cheap-ass price. If I can get it at Amazon without leaving my house, then so be it. God bless me, you know? Maybe that's it. I just kind of want to throw that question out there. Like, what do y'all think about Black Friday this year? What are y'all planning to get on Black Friday? Are there any cool steelbooks or any special 4Ks that I should know about? Again, let me know at Barrios Podcast on Twitter. So I'm going to do this week on Letterboxd and just talk about the movies that I've seen in the past seven days. Maybe y'all like them, maybe you don't, who knows. Uh, First off, last week I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 for the very first time. I love the first one. It's uh, just one of the scariest movies of all time for me. Toby Hooper directed the hell out of it. It is one of those films that truly gets under my skin not necessarily for kind of the the bones and the feathers and sort of the dusty atmosphere. There's like a scene in there where they're running through the woods and it's kind of dreamlike and blue. I think she's pushing Franklin in the wheelchair around and then Leatherface pops up and, oh, we scare everybody, whatever. But there's something about it that's very... You ever have a nightmare where you're being chased by somebody but you can't run as well as normal? You feel like you're running through quicksand kind of thing. I feel like Texas Chainsaw somehow sucked up some of that vibe and just has this weird acid fever dream type feeling. And for years, what I had heard about the second one is, oh, it's a comedy. Like it's a flat out, you know, the poster mimics The Breakfast Club. And so you're looking at that just going, okay, I guess this is just a laugh out loud slapstick comedy. And for me, what I found about Texas Chainsaw is... It seems like Hooper's reaction to what the critics thought the first movie was. You know, the people that were decrying Texas Chainsaw because it was so bloody and so violent and over the top and all of this crazy nonsense that's lobbed at slasher movies of the day. It sounds like Hooper just decided to go, well, fuck it. We'll make that movie. We'll make, you know, the effects just gnarly and so much blood and crazy you know, special effects. Like, the effect that gets me is still Chop Top scratching 
played by Bill Mosley, by the way, in an incredible performance. What a horror master. Just scratching the metal plate on his head, and he's picking at the skin that's on the side of it. And it is disgusting, but it looks real. Like, it looks like the man's got his stuff, you know, bolted into his face, into his head. And it just looks kind of like the creep show version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It feels kind of like comic book style. While it is as silly as it is, I also found that the scares were still there. You know, the construction of the jump scares. I mean, you know that one jump scare is extraordinary. And it's just a masterclass in misdirection. It's stuff that if you're watching the masters like Craven and Carpenter, you're looking at it just going, okay, this this is not made by somebody who is just out here to make a cheap film. This is somebody who understands suspense, tension, release, and all that, and wants to toss it out at you. In the hands of an incapable filmmaker, that scene where uh, the DJ is getting assaulted by Leatherface, you know, he's grinding his chainsaw between her legs, oh, you know, in a different movie, that would have just been a gross-out sex torture thing, but the way Hooper directs it is just so bone-chilling to me. He's one of those guys that takes the time to really get you in the head of the heroes, of the protagonists, and really takes the time to get you into their trauma. There's something really wrong about it, and you see her face, and you can see that she's stone cold in a sense she's trying to hold it together so she doesn't scream her ears out but she also understands that she can kind of like reason with this guy this leather face guy and there's something so just purely terrifying about being in that vulnerable of a situation that vulnerability rang out to me and then you've got this other scene with uh, the cowboy the producer the guy with the cowboy hat and I don't really like spoiling movies that much. Yeah, I know it's like 30-something years old, but come on, guys. Like, you know, not everybody has seen everything, so I don't want to go ahead and spoil anything. But there's something that happens with him that, you know, Hooper just makes the smallest adjustments to a scene. You know, you'd be in a moment where the bang and the, oh, the reveal of what happens is the worst thing about the scene. And then you cut. But with Hooper, he stays in it. And he stays in that trauma and he lets you exist with this person that you know. And you're like, oh my God, this is so horrible. And I felt sad more than anything with this movie. It's not the fear that gets me. It's just the empathy. I think Hooper is an empathetic filmmaker. And if you're out here just dismissing the characters as cannon fodder, you're really missing the point. He lets you live with this trauma and he lets you empathize with these people. So he's like, look... I care about these people as humans. I want to see them make it. I want to see them survive. Because horror really, I think, is a hopeful genre. It, you know, it's a genre that helps you tackle the things that you know, are the worst of you, the things that make you the most scared or paralyzed or whatever. And the best feelings are when we see good, again, triumph over evil. Is that a spoiler for the movie? Should it be? No. But I really did enjoy Texas Chainsaw 2. It was a solid three and a half for me on Letterboxd. Uh, it's, I think, a little long in the middle, kind of meanders a bit, and it's not quite as funny as I thought it would be or hoped it would be. But whenever Hooper gets that stuff right, he, he gets it right. Uh, then I saw, I finally saw The Lighthouse. 
My favorite Modest Mouse album is We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank. I wanted to make a band called The Dead Octopus. I have octopi in my house everywhere. They are my favorite types of animals. I love the kraken. I love the sea. I love pirates. I love all this kind of nautical stuff and mermaids and sirens and Neptune and shit. And what's strange about The Lighthouse for me is that those elements, which I would normally would really love, they weren't my favorite parts in the movie. And maybe it's because they were kind of muted or maybe it wasn't just as... Like, maybe I needed another bang or like a really hard-hitting reveal, but I never really got that with this one. And instead, I really latched on to just the worst couple weeks at work of your entire life that Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are playing up. You know, I found myself more intrigued by kind of the, their relationship and especially Pattinson dealing with this shithead drunkard of a boss rather than all the crazy stuff surrounding it. Uh, I did love, just absolutely love the cinematography of this one. I love the little effects. You can see some like fake seagulls flying in the back. I kind of enjoyed how the crop really puts you in this sort of claustrophobic mood half the time. I love the way the lighting really uh, affects the actors and their performances. I mean, my God, Willem Dafoe going into that crazy hark and the lightning flashes. It feels like a play. You know, it feels like you're watching a play in real life and the way that lighting hits his beard and he looks just like a demon as he's delivering this crazy curse on Robert Pattinson, I just thought was stellar. If you're trying to make everything make sense, it's not really going to work. But if you're watching it to see two weird, badass actors at the height of their powers, I mean, there's, I'm going to say it right here. There's a thing that Robert Pattinson does here where I was getting Daniel Day-Lewis vibes. Like, this kid is insane. I say kid as he's older than me. But uh, this guy is insane. And he's totally willing to go out there on limbs and just make himself look as ridiculous and crazy as possible to get the performance, to get the desperation. There's Maybe I say kid because there's such like a, a rebellious, youthful, sort of unfulfilled promise energy of this guy. And uh, I don't know, watching him descend into madness is something I'm like, wow this guy is really one of our best actors. It, it's stunning that he can go from something as just bizarre and completely insulated as this late 1800s drama slash little sci-fi drops of this weirdo movie, and then he can go on to be in the biggest you know, blockbuster with the Batman next year. This guy's range is incredible, and Pattinson is going to be, I think... Honestly, I think Pattinson is our new DiCaprio. They say DiCaprio is the last movie star, the one whose name can really sell anything. And I, I know there's Tom Cruise in there, but Tom Cruise can't sell everything. I think anything DiCaprio touches, he can sell. Even if it's some weirdo, you know, him getting attacked by a bear in the woods movie, or if it's him being with Quentin Tarantino in this kind of strange 60s hangout film. You know, I think I think DiCaprio has the clout to do that. And if Batman goes well, I think Pattinson could be on the same trajectory. So I'm excited. I, I'm going to call it. 
First episode of the Daniel Barrios podcast. This is my hot take. Robert Pattinson is our generation's Leonardo DiCaprio. All right, look, if I'm not actively reviewing a movie, I reserve the right to tap out, right? Like, look, if you're not writing a review, if you're not filming a video, give yourself the gift of time. Time is the one thing on this planet that we are not ever going to be able to get back. Look, you can work out and get healthy again. You can hit the lottery and make it bid and win all your money back. But the one thing you cannot get on this planet back is your time. So when I popped in weekend at Bernie's, and for 25 minutes, I didn't laugh. I didn't smile once. I sat there. I'm going, can I really log this on Letterboxd? And I said, yeah. The, I'll let you know the line that I quit, though. When uh, he's trying to lie to this girl that he brought over to his parents' house because, you know, you can't tell a girl that you're dating. You're going to bring her over to your parents' house. Like He's lying to her, saying his parents are dead, that they died in a train accident. And he goes, you know, statistically, like, the pla- uh, trains were, like, trains have more accidents than planes. She goes, I thought trains were safer than planes. And then he kind of stops for a beat and goes, well, a plane. And then he grabs his hand and rests it on top of her and he goes, fell on the train. And the silence that just sat there in awkwardness. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. Like, that is just the lamest shit in the world to me. Like, dude, are you serious? You're lying so much about this that you're going to pretend that the plane landed on it. Like, like, who wrote this? A five-year-old? Like, what is wrong with you? I traded a weekend at Bernie's for several weeks at Murray's because I finally watched Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Uh, Zizou? Zizou? I don't remember. But it's the movie directed by Wes Anderson. It's about this documentarian slash uh, oceanographer named Steve Zizou who uh, is filming his next film. After the last film, there was this jaguar shark that ate his friend Esteban of 27 years. Like, they've been friends for so long, and he was eaten. And now Steve is on this war path to go and find the shark and kill it. And in the meantime, there's... A lady who is profiling him for some magazine played by an adorable, lovable, so young Kate Blanchett. And the guy who potentially could be his son played by Owen Wilson. And it's basically got everybody that you would love in a Wes Anderson movie in it. What I noticed about this movie, and I think I've noticed this about most Wes Anderson movies, is that if I like the people that are in the movie and I like the work that goes into the movie it doesn't really matter if i don't necessarily get super invested in the characters it's his is not really a filmography that i get emotionally swept up by but it's something where i admire the craft and the work and i like the actors and i like how silly they can be you know i don't know there's something kind of just quaint i think i'm gonna bring that word up again quaint about this movie that i very much enjoyed Again, you've got the symmetry all over the place, and you've got the set that looks like you opened up a dollhouse and is just looking outside at how everything works, the kind of Wes Andersonisms, and those are really cool too. Uh, Low-key, this has one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard, which has a bunch of Bowie in it, and one of my favorite mic drops in uh, 
sorry, one of my favorite needle drops in recent memory is when St- when uh, Bill Murray is fighting off Simoleon pirates to the dulcet tones of Search and Destroy by, I- by Iggy and the Stooges. And it is just so glorious to me. <laughs> it's got just that pure energy. I-, I cheered. I actively cheered. I wanted Bill Murray to fuck up some people and get his ship back. It was the best sequel to Captain Phillips that was never made in those five minutes. Shout out to the guy who's singing Bowie's songs in Portuguese on his acoustic guitar. I think that guy has a beautiful voice. I saw this week I had to tap out idiocracy sucks and this is so messed up to me given that I'm a huge King of the Hill fan Mike Judge like I don't understand what it is about his movies I just don't like them it's just I don't know if his brand of humor really only works with sort of animated characters where maybe the world can be a little crazier but even then the production design here is pretty neat it has some kind of like I don't know why it reminded me of like this fifth element meets like kind of what Taika Waititi was doing with Ragnarok, a lot of practical sets and these weird costumes, like that kind of stuff worked. And there was some uh, background jokes that like were decent, but there's something about this movie where like Luke Wilson was just so devoid of charisma. It, it's like a black hole. You get nothing from this guy. And Dak Shepard, you get nothing from this guy. And Maya Rudolph is horribly wasted because she's the only one that seems alive in this thing. The movie is just... I hate to say it, it's just dumb. Take the concept of the stupid people are breeding, as uh, Harvey Danger would say in Flagpole Sitta. The stupid people are breeding and the smart people aren't, and that's why we're getting stupider over time. Okay, do something with that. Make a commentary about how that doesn't have to be in the year 2505. You know, all these systems that were put in place that Luke Wilson is struggling with, like the tattoo scan or him uh, realizing that this company is uh, poisoning everyone, like, doesn't it take some fraction of intelligence to start that kind of company? Doesn't it... Wouldn't it be interesting to see how, like, the people that are at the top and hidden behind these systems maybe really are the smart ones? Maybe they're the ones that are just, like, cruel and guiding humanity? Again, I kind of tapped out because I was just so bored, so I don't really know if maybe there are some hints of that in there. I mean, I looked at the plot synopsis, and by the end, it seems pretty straightforward what the movie is about and how it does it. But I just found myself so incredibly disappointed by a movie that was just... Like, even Jackass, with their stunts, has no pretense to it. I feel like this one has a little bit of a, oh, we're going to take this concept and we're going to try and be smart and satirical about it. Like, all these people saying, like, oh, this is Donald Trump's America. I was like, fuck you, man. 
stupidity takes at least some form of intellect. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but I think if you're going to make a good, stupid movie, you got to be a smart motherfucker doing it. And that's going to be it. That's my rant on Idiocracy and a bunch of other movies that I saw on Letterboxd this week. And that's it for the inaugural episode of the Daniel Barrios podcast. If you stuck to the end, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate y'all. Uh, if you want to hit me up with questions, comments, suggestions, uh, if you want to you know, hit me up with recommendations for Spike Lee movies or tell me what you think of Black Friday or Wonder Woman or anything I've talked about, hit me up on Twitter at Barrios Podcast. That is spelled B-E-R-R-I-O-S, the word podcast. I'm going to end every episode with some dulcet tones for your ears. So I'm going to end this episode with the way I started it. This is a wonderful band called The Men and their song, Turn It Around. You're going to hear that as the theme for every episode. Until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of the movies, physical media, forever.